Well, good morning, Christ Community Church, and welcome to this week's virtual service. I want to give you some announcements before we move forward. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your continued faithfulness in supporting the ministries at Christ Community, especially the text to give option. If you want more information about how to give online, you can see the email and contact Carly in the front office. Uh, we also want to thank you as a church for the outpouring concern uh, from our congregation about the current tensions surrounding the, the death of George Floyd and all the protests that have happened since then. Um, our nation needs to heal from that. And uh, there's a sermon that Paul preached on May 31st uh, that highlights some of these issues from a biblical perspective. It's called The Challenge of Changing Momentum, and it's from May 31st, and you can look at that on our sermon archive online, and I would encourage you, if you haven't heard that sermon, to go and look at that. In the weekly email we sent out, we also gave you three resources uh, that Paul Phillips really thought was going to be helpful to you as you try to think through this very complex issue uh, with people really on all sides and lots of different opinions. So check out those three resources. They're really helpful. If you have any personal needs, uh, we really would encourage you to contact the front office. We'd love to pray for you. We realize that this coronavirus and the quarantine that's followed has created a lot of fear in the lives of many people, but also in some cases, uh, financial hardship. And so we want to be sensitive to all of your needs, and we really do want to be helpful to you. So contact the office if you have a need that we can meet. The summer is starting, and the youth ministry at Christ Community uh, is really hopping now. And we're going to the beach. We're having Bible studies. Uh, we're able to meet in parks and other locations that are safe for us to meet in. And we're going on some day trips uh, coming up in August, and we're really excited about all the things uh, that we're doing. A detailed list of all the events are in the email that you can check out as well. well one, of our, uh, one of our missionaries is named Lance and Lisa Lawrence, and they've been serving in Jordan for several uh, years now and have had a really great ministry there. And we want to watch uh, a little greeting from them this morning before uh, the sermon that highlights some of the things that they're working on uh, in the past uh, months, especially during this quarantine as it's hit Jordan in a unique way. So pay attention to that. It's going to be great. You can reach out to them. We can give you your e their email address and you can be praying for them as well. Well, this morning, Sam Kennedy is our preacher, and this is the second time that he has preached during quarantine in a video sermon. And so we're very thankful to Sam Kennedy uh, that he is able to do that for us this week. You know, it's been about a year since Sam Kennedy uh, has decided to join RUF and, and leave our staff, and we have missed him greatly. Many of our members uh, love seeing him. We saw him at the drive through for our Founders Day celebration, and we're all overjoyed to hear him this morning preach. Uh, and his sermon title uh, is Two Essential Questions, and it comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Hi there, this is Lance and Lisa, and this is a Middle East Moment. And we want to invite you to see how the gospel is moving across the Middle East. Hey everyone, today we want to tell you about how God has opened opportunities for us to enter the homes of refugees on way of a new nutritional and medicine program that has all come about during the COVID-19 global crisis here in the Middle East and around the world. As the crisis began in March, we started asking the Lord, how could this unexpected event be an opportunity? From previous home visits, we knew many Sudanese, Somali, Yemeni, Syrian refugee families had little or no income. Our health clinic had been providing medicines and vitamins, but we had to close. And so we began calling patients, buying medicines and delivering it to their homes. We knew malnourishment was such a critical challenge, particularly with children and pregnant women and elderly during normal circumstances. It was even getting worse during this COVID-19 time with no means even to buy basic things. So we've kicked off this program and we're distributing vouchers to 75 families to receive locally grown fresh fruits and vegetables from vendors in the traditional marketplaces. We live near the Jordan Valley, which has amazing produce. So over these next three months, we're looking to provide these vouchers as we team up with Arab partners and do home visits for each of these families. 
we're looking for ways we can pray and share words of life and hope in this really desperate time. Even today, I was able to go out into homes of a Sudanese family from the Darfur that have been here for several years. And while they're not only given these vouchers for the fruit and veg program, but also being able to share with them the story of Adam and Eve, that separation that's happened, but God's desire to pull people and redeem them and pull him back into relationship with him. So we ask that you would pray with us for the next three months, that this would be a time not just for physical help, but actually spiritual fruit in the lives of these refugee families. And as well, please continue to pray that the kingdom would continue to expand throughout the Middle East. Good morning and welcome Christ Community Church to our first song we're going to sing, Behold Our God. Let's lift our voices.
morning, Christ community. Uh, like David said, my name is Sam Kennedy, and I am glad to be with you wherever you are this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach and teach this morning. So wherever you are, uh, whatever you're doing, uh, I hope that you have a Bible nearby and that you'd grab it and open it and follow along with us. We're going to be in the book of First Peter chapter 2, and I'm just going to focus on two verses for the sermon, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but just for the purpose of context and orientation, I'll go ahead and read the beginning of First Peter chapter 2. So we'll start in First Peter chapter 2, starting uh, in verse 4. First Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And here we start in verse 9, where Peter writes, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, may your words through your apostle and servant, Peter, speak to us today in our time, just as it spoke um, to this original audience scattered in what is now modern-day Turkey, to those scattered and harassed communities of the early church who were worried about the direction that the world was going, who felt powerless against the chaos and the oppression around them. Lord, would your word speak to us in our situation this morning? And would you apply it to our hearts? Just as Peter writes earlier where he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen and amen. This morning, I want to tell you about a case of mistaken identity. Uh, I saw some of y'all recently at the uh, Founders Day uh, event, and it was fun to see some of you. I was hiding behind uh, a mask, so it was kind of difficult for people to recognize me. And then also, it, somehow during quarantine, uh, I shaved the beard that I usually have. And there was this period where I was just having a mustache, and all around town, people would mistake me uh, for a friend of mine named Mike Blair, who uh, looks a lot like me. We kind of have the same complexion, same color hair, same build, and he has had a mustache for a really long time. And uh, so a lot of times people would come up to me assuming I was Mike and have this pretty long conversation with me, and I would just kind of let them speak because I didn't really want to embarrass them. But every now and then I'd go, hey, 
I'm Sam. Did you think I was Mike? And they'd go, oh, oh my goodness, you shaved your beard. And, uh, and it's just fun to mess with people like that. And I should know because I have been on the receiving end of uh, mistaken identity. Uh, when I was serving as the college minister here for a while, uh, there was this season where two students, these uh, young women at UNCW, would come to church and they were visiting kind of sporadically, but I never saw them both in the same place at the same time. It was kind of like Clark Kent and Superman. And so uh, they were about the same height, uh, same kind of complexion, same color hair, and one was named Ellis and one was named Teresa. And one time, one of them came to church and, um, you know, this girl, Ellis, uh, she was a young life leader and uh, she was dating a student that I knew. And so, I, you know, I knew enough of her background that when she came to church with her parents, I kind of met them in the lobby and I was on my way in to lead worship that Sunday, I think, and trying to be welcoming, you know, trying to be a good leader uh, to the people in the hospitality team and kind of, you know, do what I ask other people to do. So to welcome people and have a conversation with them, I said, hey, just, Ellis, I'm so glad that you're serving as a Young Life leader. It's really hard what you're doing at the high school. Mom and dad, thank you for letting her do that. We're so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here this Sunday. Maybe we can talk after the service. And then I had to run in and uh, lead worship. And I saw Ellis the next day on campus, and I said, Ah, oh, Ellis, it was so great to see you at church yesterday. It's great to meet your parents. And she looked at me and she said, Sam, I haven't been to Christ Community in like two months. Like, I found a different church, and that, um, that wasn't me. And I was terrified and humiliated. And it turns out that then I found Teresa on campus a little while ago, and I stopped her and I said, Hey, I am so sorry I thought you were this other person. And she said, yeah, my parents and I had no idea what to say, but we just kind of went with it. Um, and so, I mean, the reason I bring this uh, mistaken identity thing up is that, um, you know, if you don't know who someone is, it's kind of hard to know how you're supposed to relate to them. And I mean, that's true at church, uh, but I think it's even more profoundly true in our lives. Because I think for a lot of us, we have a mistaken identity problem, uh, not with other people, but we don't actually know who we are. We have a mistaken identity problem with ourselves. Uh, we've forgotten and we find it hard to believe who the Bible says that we are. And because we don't know that or because we've forgotten it or because we won't accept it, um, we don't know how we're supposed to relate to ourselves. We don't know who we're supposed to be in the world. I think uh, so many of our questions that we face today, especially in you know, the current climate that we're in, about what the church should do or how the church is supposed to speak and how the church is supposed to react to all of the issues and the injustices in our world right now can be answered by answering uh, two essential questions first. And these are those two essential questions, and that, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The two essential questions that are the keystone and the foundation for every other conversation that we're going to have are these. First, who am I? And number two, what am I for? The first question, who am I, is about identity. The second question, what am I for? Well, that's about purpose. And this morning, looking in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're, we're going to examine Peter's answer to those two essential questions. Because I want to submit to you that we can only be purposeful and pleasing to God in our work in the world to the degree that we're absolutely nailed down and confident in our identity in Him. Let me just say that again. We can only be purposeful and pleasing to God through our work in the world 
to the degree that we are centered on and drilled down and secure in our identity and relationship to Him. So, the first question, uh, who are we? Um, Peter's going to start to answer that uh, when he speaks to this church in verse 9. This is what he's going to tell us. In verse 9, we're going to see that first, the answer to the question, who are we, is we, the church, you, brother and sister, believer in Christ, uh, Christian family, uh, Christian household, roommates watching this, this is who you are. Your fundamental identity, your fundamental nature is you belong to God. Whatever else you are, you are the people that are God's. You are a people who are intimately connected to Him in the Son through the Spirit. That's what, what Peter starts his letter off saying. Listen to how he addresses it at the very beginning. He says, uh, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. He's saying, you belong to the God of the Bible, the God who is Trinity. You are His. Scattered all about the world, different uh, ethnicities, different cultures, different races. Your fundamental identity is you are God's people. And the way we're going to see this is, is we're going to look at this idea of us uh, belonging to God uh, from three different angles. First, I want to see that we're God-possessed. Number two, we're God-separated. And then also you're God-accepted. So first, just this idea, uh, you are, did you know this, Christian, you are God-possessed. You are God's special possession. You are a people that exist for His own possession. This is what Exodus uh, 19.6 says. God says to the people of Israel here, He says, uh, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Peter is drawing on this Old Testament imagery of the people of God to drill down first and foremost that we belong to God. We are God's possession uh, he has bought us. We are owned, not by ourselves, but we are owned by God. And the fact that, that you are specially owned by God, that you are specially belonging to Him, also entails that you have been called out by God, that you are, uh, have a special relationship to God that's different from the other peoples of the world. You can look at the language in Exodus 19 uh, applied to Israel. Uh, when God says, you know, all the earth is mine, but you are going to be my special possession. You are going to be a holy nation. And that's what Peter says also, that, that we're not just uh, possessed by God. And man, okay, that language possessed by God can be a little bit confusing. Uh, you know, it's not like God is possessed uh, we're possessed by God in the way that, like, the exorcist uh, has people being possessed. It, possession by God just means you belong to Him. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He doesn't uh, obliterate your will. When um, the Holy Spirit is living in Peter's life and, and causing him to write this letter, it's not like Peter somehow goes in a trance and gets possessed or controlled by the Holy Spirit, and then he kind of wakes up and goes, I don't even know what I wrote. Well, let's see what's in here. No, no. When the Holy Spirit enters in your life, He doesn't destroy your will. He doesn't destroy your choices. He doesn't mess with your voice or your vocabulary or your interests. What He does is He works in those and through those to accomplish His perfect will and purposes, which I think is actually even greater and even more beautiful than just kind of 
you know, using us like puppets. Uh, so we're not possessed by God you know, in that weird uh, controlling sense. Uh, we're possessed by God in, in the owning sense, that you belong to God, that you've been bought back out of your former way of life into a new condition, into a new relationship with him. So the God-possessed, the people for God's own possession, are also God-separated, meaning they're a holy nation. Uh, that, that phrase holy uh, really just means that, that they've been um, set apart from uh, common use, but not just a separation from the rest of the world, but a separation to something. Um, you know, we don't do this in, in church a lot nowadays, and y'all don't do this at, at Christ Community. Uh, but in some uh, churches, you have holy instruments, uh, you know, like a holy cup, uh, a cup that's been uh, washed and set aside and, and um, sanctified, in a sense, uh, to be used for um, the Lord's Supper or uh, special clothes or special uh, objects that get used. And they're called holy things. Now, why is that? Well, there is, there is a sense in which they're, they're different than common things. Uh, they're different than all the other things. But it, the idea that they're holy doesn't mean that they're just separated from the rest of the pack. It means that they're separated for a purpose, like they're separated to something. Uh, so you, God's holy people, are different but you're different because you belong to God. God has put his, his name tag on your life. <laughs> it's almost like he's uh, put a reserved sign on you so that he said, you know, um, you know all the other seats in the auditorium, uh, they're just kind of for common use, but I have put my name tag on this one seat. I've saved this seat for myself. It's been set apart for only my use to belong, especially to me. You are God-separated. But the God-possessed, the God-separated, are also, according to Peter, the God-accepted. And this is really important to remember. Uh, our identity consists uh, not just in that we belong to God, not just in that we're uh, different from the rest of the world, but also that God really likes you. That you have a special privilege of intimacy and connection with him. You know, that's what God means when he talks about uh, his people being a royal priesthood. You know, the priests in the Old Testament were the people who had special access to the presence of God. You know, and the kings had this special authority. So by calling his people, by calling the church, this New Testament people, a holy, royal priesthood, he's saying, all of you, from the least to the greatest, all have the same access to God. You're all accepted into the holiest of holies. You're all accepted uh, into the special, uh, intimate fellowship with Him. This means, by the way, that there's no JV members of the body of Christ. That there, there's no uh, special, specially priestly members who, they, you know, they're the ones who are especially close to God. No, no, everyone is in Christ. You can't get much closer to Christ than being in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're not just next to Christ. You're not just beside Christ. You're not just kind of hanging around Christ. You're in Christ. You're intimately and organically connected to him. And the other thing about the priest is that, you know, in order for them to be able to enter the presence of God, you know, they had to wash. They had to clean. They had to make atonement. They had to make sacrifice for sin. I think the beautiful thing that, that we learn in the New Testament, that we see especially in the book of Hebrews, is that it's not the blood of bulls or goats that makes our lives fit and holy to enter the presence of Almighty God. 
It's actually the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That because of His death on your behalf, the way to God has been opened up. It's as if God has thrown His doors to the sanctuary wide open and He's saying, My beloved, come and be with me. You're welcome to come and have fellowship with me. We have access to God. So you belong to God. You've been separated by God and for God, and you're accepted by God, not on the basis of anything you've done, but on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. And so you have this this special authoritative uh, fellowship with God. Now, uh, if we really (laughs) drill down on this, if we really understand our identity, this should produce gratitude in us. This should produce thankfulness in us. This should produce wonder in us. Why? Well, who did it? Who made it possible? Who separated you? Who bought you? Uh, Who ransomed you? Who made your life acceptable to God? Was it you? No, no, it was God. You're the one doing all of the work here is God. You're God-possessed, God-bought, God-separated, and God-accepted because you don't have a righteousness of your own, but you have God's righteousness that He gives to you that makes you holy. Uh, there's this beautiful um, line in, in the beginning of uh, the letter uh, of Peter in chapter 1. This is what he says. He says, uh, don't you know that you were ransomed, verse 18, chapter 1, don't you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Understanding our identity should help us and cause us to treasure Jesus because it's by His work that all of this is possible. Now, why did God do that? I mean, why why would God go to all the trouble of gathering uh, people, uh, gathering you to himself, putting his name on you, rescuing you? Uh, Because he loves you. Because he wanted you to be his. Not because of anything special or good in you, anything deserving anything worthy, anything attractive, uh, but because God is looking for objects of mercy to pour out His love upon. This is a beautiful thing. You see this all throughout the Old Testament where the people of Israel are going, you know, why did God choose us out of all the peoples of, of all the nations of the earth? This is what God says in Deuteronomy 10. Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God's rich, basically, is what he's saying. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. So why would God choose you? It says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Why did God do that? Just because he chose it. He did it because he did it. And it is that way because he said so. Now, I think what's so important and what I love about the way the Bible describes this is if if God gave us any reason in ourself to base our identity on, uh, we'd be totally insecure all of the time right? If it was your beauty, if it was your intelligence, it was, if it was your ability, if it was your influence, if it was your success, 
you know, we know all of those things wither and fade, and, and that puts a lot of pressure on us to, to keep it up. But instead, God says, I want you to base it all on me, on my choice of you, on my love for you, on my work in your behalf. It's as if he says, you know, if you want to know who you are, you don't look inward at your ability, at your own feelings, at, you know, at what you think. Um, you don't look outward to other people. I mean, that's kind of what Peter starts with at the very beginning. He said, you know, all those other people uh, who are rejecting Jesus, all those people uh, out there in the world who are op opposed to you and oppressing you and making life difficult for you and making fun of you, don't look out to them to get your identity either. He says, but you, do you know who you are? Well, look up. Look up to God. And that's where you're going to find um, a fixed, stable point to chart your course. You know, um, there's this ancient uh, geometry scientist, mathematician guy. I, I think they didn't really have separate disciplines back then, so you can just say this ancient smart guy named Archimedes. If you are in middle school and you're taking geometry, um, you probably know who Archimedes is. But um, he did a lot of things with angles and levers and triangles and, and physics. And one of the things Archimedes said uh, very famously is he said, uh, if you will give me a firm place to stand and a long enough lever, I could move the entire world. Friends, this is your fixed place to stand. Not in yourself, not in the opinions of other people, but in God's sovereign choice of you. You are loved by Him. You are separated by Him. You are accepted by Him. Now, understanding that, understanding your identity, nailing down on that, then will allow you to go out into the world in strength. And the reason I start with the identity question, I think this is so important, is because so often when we don't seek our identity in the creator, we, we just go out and we try to seek our identity in the creature, in the created world, in the things that are made, in the things that we can see and touch and do. So uh, instead of going, uh, I'm loved by God, now I can go work at my job, or be a parent, or be a student, or be a roommate, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, um, we go, I'm not sure if I'm loved. I'm not sure if I'm accepted. I'm not sure if God and I are okay. But you know what might make me feel better? Is if I go into my job and do a really good job, or if I'm a parent and my kids are uh, perfect, or if I'm, um, if I go home to my spouse and they respond perfectly to me. Uh, then maybe I'll know I'm loved. Then maybe I'll know I'm accepted. Or here's a, a really uh, kind of vicious way that we do this. I'm not sure if God loves me. I know what I'll do. I'll do ministry. <laughs> and then if I do enough things for God, maybe then I'll have a deeper sense. Uh, I'll shake this nagging feeling that, that I actually... Uh, I'm accepted by God and loved by God. You know, I, this summer I, I just uh, realized that I've been in full-time ministry for 15 years. And, and I got to tell you that that pattern uh, of trying to build your identity on your activity for God is one of the craftiest tricks of the devil. So, before you try to, try to build your identity on anything else, no matter how good, would you just remember that before you woke up this morning, before you did anything good or bad, when your, your eyes were still kind of crusty and your breath was just funky and you're sitting in bed, you hadn't even planned any of the good things that you were going to do today, how you were going to tune in and you know watch church and do a really good job getting your kids all together and doing the children's lesson and read the Bible and like uh, all of that stuff. Before you made any of those promises or any of those plans, God loved you and you belong to him. 
And when you lay your head down tonight, if you are in Christ, you are beloved. You belong to him. And you are accepted by the Father in the Son and being knit into him and formed in his image by the Spirit. I don't know if you believe that. But if you do, it will change how you go out into the world. If you answer the identity question, it helps us answer the purpose question. And I just briefly, just for the last couple of minutes, I want to take some time to look at that purpose question. Who we are, we're God's. What are we for? We exist in this world to be heralds of God's excellence. Uh, this is the way one uh, commentator writes it. He says, The church exists for many reasons, but none more important or urgent than to proclaim and make known verbally and visibly the excellencies and attributes of the greatness and grace of God. To proclaim and make known verbally and visibly the excellencies and the attributes of the greatness and grace of God. Now, that, that's um, another way of saying that what we're for is communication. Our purpose is to communicate the greatness and the goodness and the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God. And those, th those things, the, the greatness and the wonder and the beauty and the grace and the glory of God are seen in his wondrous works. I mean, there's this amazing word that Peter uses, and it's translated uh, excellencies here. And um, it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It's just this word that means wonders. <laughs> and so Peter is saying, this is your purpose, to be mouthpieces just spilling out praise and glory and wonder and excellent, beautiful things about God and what he has done. And the way... Uh, that his beauty and his excellency is seen most clearly is in your life, is in his work in your life for you in history. And so that's why Peter uh, makes this really personal really quickly. He says, yeah, you're supposed to be communicators, uh, but you're supposed to be communicators of your story of redemption, that uh, you were in darkness and you were called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. That you've had that experience of being in the darkness. Once I was blind and now I see. Once I was lost and now I was found. Even those of you who, who have lived in the church your whole life and you can't remember a time when you weren't a Christian, guess what? There was a moment when you came before the church, maybe even Christ Community Church, and you're brought before the community of, God, of the people of God. And, and maybe it was Paul, maybe it was someone else. They walked up and they put God's mark on you. They washed you with the water of baptism. God put his seal on you, the seal of his promises to say, this is my child. She belongs to me. And I've put this promise on her so that if she has faith in me, the seal will break open and all the blessings that come to the covenant people of God will fall on her and on her family. Do you know that? Once you were not a people, and now you have become a people. Once you were uh, not set apart for any special use, but then God washed you and made you his, and now you're set apart as a member of God's family. But that, that communication that we do, uh, I think, has these two other angles that I think are really important. I'm going to deal with them uh, together. There's a community angle and also a compassion angle. It's almost as though uh, Peter is saying, okay, as you're going to be communicating uh, the excellence and the beauty and, and just the glory and the amazingness of, of who God is and what he has done, I just want you to remember two things. You don't do it by yourself and you don't do it uh, in your own strength. Because listen to what he says. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. These, these two aspects of community and compassion, that receiving of mercy, uh, it's almost as though uh, Peter is saying, hey, there was this whole time where y- y- you didn't belong to the people of God. You were just kind of scattered and kind of living life on your own. And also you're kind of living life in your own strength, you know, according to your own effort. And then something happened. And from that point on until the day Jesus comes back, and even after that, in the new heavens and the new earth, you are going to belong to a people, and you are going to be objects of mercy. And I think that's kind of incredible. (laughs) We never stop being uh, communityed, and we never stop being compassioned by God. Uh, There's this... um, story that I read to my son. It's called Mr. Dog. It was one of his favorite stories growing up. It's just this kind of weird children's book. Sean and I would read it and then laugh afterwards like, who wrote this thing? But uh, it's the story of a dog named Mr. Dog who lives like a man and he kind of lives in his own house. And the way the author describes him is, is he's a dog who belonged to himself. And then he kind of goes walking out and then he meets this boy and the boy's just kind of out by himself because the boy is the boy's own boy. He's uh, the boy who belonged to himself. And so this dog who belongs to himself and then the boy who belongs to himself, they just kind of go and they kind of do life together and they go to a market and they get food for dinner and they go fishing together and then they go back to the dog's house and they hang out and they have dinner and they're just kind of, the, the story ends with them living together and just kind of as roommates. It's so weird. But here's the the interesting thing. Um, They're both just alone together. They're both just belonging to themselves, their own masters, kind of running their own story, but around each other. And and I think for a lot of us, uh, kind of unintentionally, that's our picture of what Christian community is like. We kind of live our lives uh, belonging to ourselves, kind of doing our own thing, you know, off in our own household. And then we come together on Sunday and all these people who kind of belong to ourselves, we're all just kind of hanging out together and then we go off and do our own thing again. That's not what Christian community is. Christian community means that you used to do that. You used to live like all the other people in the world, just kind of according to your own devices. But now you've been brought in to the family of God. And you don't belong to yourself. You belong to one another. The scripture says we're members of one another, that we're intimately and organically connected to each other just as we are to Christ. So what happens to the, a weak part of the body of Christ affects the strong as well. And that all parts have dignity and belong equally uh, to Christ. I I think if you really want to understand what what Peter's getting at and the picture that he's painting, you have to recognize that uh, this little uh, quote in in verse 10 here of chapter 2 comes from the book of Hosea. I don't know, some of you know the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet um, who married this uh, wife, a, a, a woman of unfaithfulness named Gomer. And she ran around on Hosea and went after uh, other lovers. And then uh, in Ho- the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 2, there's this just amazing picture where God says, this is what I'm going to do to my unfaithful people. And Hosea, this is the picture that I'm giving you of how you're supposed to relate uh, to your unfaithful wife. I'm going to draw my people out into the desert and then I'm going to allure them. I'm going to bring her back to me. And I'm going to say to my people, those who were not my people, now you are my people. You who have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And this picture uh, in the book of Hosea is, is a prophecy of what's going to happen when God comes back to make all things new. It, it's a picture of what happens when the king comes. And so what, what Peter is saying is, don't you know that picture that Hosea gave way, way back 
of the goodness that was going to come in the last days when, when God himself would come as a groom and call his people to himself, that he would gather the people who weren't a people together into his people and gather those people who didn't receive mercy in to be objects of his mercy. That's happening right now, right now in the church. And, and I wonder if you realize that, um, that, that the reason we uh, can be excited to go out and, and communicate all the goodness and the excellencies of who Jesus is and what he has done is that we are right now living in this time where, where all of the stories of the Old Testament are coming true. All of those things that everyone, all those saints of old had looked forward to, they're all coming true right now in the church. And so Peter's saying, go out and tell everyone that all the stories are true. God's uh, keeping every promise that he made. Now, you might be wanting me to just kind of uh, give you a little bit of of practical help. Um, I've told you who you are. I've told you what you're for. for, And you might want to say, well, Sam, tell me how I'm supposed to do this. And, And, you know, I think what's actually great about the Bible is it doesn't give us a simple how-to manual on how we're supposed to be communicating the excellencies of Jesus. But um, I will say that from what uh, Peter gives us is it seems like we're supposed to do it um, bravely, uh, despite all opposition. We're supposed to do it persistently. Uh, We're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. It says uh, in chapter 3 uh, that we're supposed to do it, I think, with delight because we are talking about excellent things after all. And I think we're supposed to do it personally in the sense that each of us is going to have a different story to share uh, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our children. I, I wonder if those close to you uh, even know about the times that God has answered a prayer in your life or the healing that he's brought about or or, or the freedom and deliverance uh, from sin and temptation that he's brought in your life. Do they know that? Have you told those stories so that they they become their stories as well? Um, I think how we do it is going to be different for each person, but we're all called to do it. We're all called to communicate the excellency of God and tell the story of what he's done for us. And I think we can be uh, brave and courageous, uh, knowing that the world outside is hungry to hear about something beautiful, hungry to hear about something good, hungry to hear about something that's just and right and beautiful. It's what everyone's longing for. And it's been so amazing to see uh, friends of mine um, African-American friends, uh, white friends, different people speaking up about the injustice that's going on in the world. Um, not to get attention, uh, not just to kind of get pats on the back from other people, but, but because uh, they belong to Jesus and they know what it's like uh, to be rescued and they know uh, what it means to have hope in a discouraging world. And that's what the world most needs. So you don't have to be afraid to give it to them. Uh, The picture uh, that I think God is calling us to is, um, it's it's something like this. A couple months ago, I came across this story and uh, the title of the story was uh, A A Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. And when I read the title, I knew, I was like, oh, I'm already going to start crying. Like, this is already beautiful. <laughs> so I start reading the story, and it's about uh, this initiative that happened uh, in the city of Philadelphia where all the public schools had lost a lot of money for music and arts funding, and so they had all of these broken instruments, like thousands of broken instruments that were just sitting in all these closets in the band rooms of the public schools. And the kids didn't have money to buy instruments. The schools didn't have money to fix the instruments. And uh, 
so all of a sudden, uh, some people started to get together and go, well, how can we raise awareness about this problem? And so they commissioned this composer, a guy named David Lang, uh, where they made a piece of music where professional musicians would come in with the student musicians and play this piece of music that was designed to be played on these broken instruments. And you can, you know, watch a little documentary about it on YouTube. It's amazing. There's like, you know, a saxophone that all the keys only play the same note. And then there's a bass where like there's just one string on it and like the neck's separated. And so people are just playing it like a drum. Uh, violins without strings. Um, violins with one string. <laughs> Tubas that, you know, don't even work. And here's the thing that's amazing. Uh it was describing uh, this composer, David Lang, and why they picked him. And uh, this one guy uh, quoted, he said, uh, when David sees broken instruments, he sees potential. And uh, I was listening to, um, I, I was listening to actually some of the, the piece that they performed. It's weird. It's a little off key. It's a little off tempo. It's a little uh, unnerving at first, but it's beautiful. And as I was listening to it, I thought, where have I heard this kind of sound before? And I realized, in church. It's so funny because, you know, I think some of the best singing that happens in church is you have all these voices together who, who are just singing passionately to the best of their ability. You got some people who are singing and they can barely get the words out because they're weeping. You got someone else, uh, you know, who is struggling with asthma and so they can't get much breath in their lungs. You've got kids who are just kind of singing along to every third word because you know, they don't really know the song that well. But everyone's trying to stay together and uh, that noise, that sound, is beautiful to God. Why? Why is uh, the sound of your fearful attempts to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to your neighbors, to your friends, um, why, why is that pleasing to God? Because God loves making music out of broken instruments. You see, because if the instruments were perfect, we'd get the glory. God doesn't need good instruments. He's good enough to use broken instruments. And so he calls us to go out into the world, to speak, to love, to share, to communicate his beauty and his excellencies, to, to tell our story and to create something beautiful out of your brokenness. Do you believe that? Would you trust that? I wonder, um, what's keeping you from speaking to your neighbors? Uh, what's keeping you from offering to pray uh, for your coworker or your friend or your family member who's sick? Don't let it be your imperfection. Don't let it be your sin. Don't let it be your weakness. Because God uses broken instruments to make a beautiful sound. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to drill down in the truth that whatever we are, however broken we are, however out of tune we are, whatever we are, we are yours. And would that fact move us out in wonder, love, and praise to proclaim and declare your excellencies to the world? Would you help us to speak the truth in love, to build bridges of friendship across all kinds of cultural, religious, racial, economic, even physical distances 
so that you would get the glory. We ask that in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.